You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. We've been in the book of Daniel now for a number of weeks, part of a larger series entitled She Who Is in Babylon. I won't take the time to explain all that this morning because this is a rather long chapter. There's a lot of verses here. I'm going to skip uh, the review and introduction and jump right into what you need to know in order to understand Daniel chapter 5. There's a little backstory here. Uh, when we start, leave chapter 4 and go to chapter 25, there's a 22-year span. 22 years since the end of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And in that period of time, three other Babylonian kings have come and gone. Nebuchadnezzar's son, um, Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law and his grandson. Now in chapter 5, we come to the last king to rule in Babylon. It's another grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. His name is Belshazzar. We'll read it later on. Now, you remember back earlier in chapter 2 when uh, Daniel interpreted or got the, uh, the dream and the interpretation of the first dream. Before he ran to Nebuchadnezzar to give him the interpretation, he spent some time praying. And in that prayer recorded in chapter 2, he says this concerning God. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and he raises others up. So in this chapter 5, that truth is going to be fulfilled. He will depose one king and he's going to set another king up. But not only does God depose a king, he deposes a whole entire kingdom, the whole Babylonian kingdom. And he does that in one night. And he does it during a massive party that's being held, a mysterious floating hand writing a message on a wall, and through a, a, a mature, an elderly uh, servant of God, party crasher named Daniel, who's about 80 years old at this point. Again, the king in the city of Babylon was Belshazzar, and he was the eldest son of Nabodius, and he was, he was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar who was ruling the city of Babylon. But his father, Nabonidus, rules the whole kingdom. But he doesn't live in Babylon. He lives in an oasis south of Babylon, enjoying the good life. And he's letting the son run things from HQ. So... We have here in Belshazzar the number two. Nabonidus, his father, is the number one. And that's why later on, when Belshazzar offers a prize to Daniel for solving the writing on the wall, he says, I'll make you number three in the kingdom. Not number two, because he was number two, because his father, Nabonidus, was number one. Now, that's just for all the history buffs to make sure they get all of their facts straight when retelling the story. Anyway, history tells us that Nabonidus was, um, was off with the army at this time that chapter 5 takes place, fighting the Persians or the Medo-Persian Empire, and they had just lost a, a big battle. And after that, that stunning loss, the, the Persians and the Medes march all the way to Babylon, and they camp outside of the city. This is a huge army now, and that's what makes what happens in this chapter a bit puzzling. 
Because outside the city, you have this huge army encamped, and and inside the city, there's a massive party going on. Let's read about it, verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. And while while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave order to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, really grandfather, but grandfathers were also referred to as fathers in Jewish culture. He, he, he uh, gave command to bring in the gold and silver goblets that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine And they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Now, the first question, again, is why is there this huge party going on while an army is encamped outside? But secondly, why are all the nobles, who presumably were also the commanders of the army, gathered together in one place instead of scattered and on high alert, as you would normally suppose? Well, There's a couple reasons, um, conjecture on the first two. It might have been that this was kind of just an escape. You know, it's like a hurricane party, (laughs) right? There's a Cat 5 bearing down on the coast, and here's a bunch of people just partying away on the beach, right? That's an escape party. Book of Proverbs says, the prudent sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple keep on going and pay the penalty. They keep on partying. Secondly, this party might have been simply a means of boasting. We learned earlier in this, city, in this series that the city of Babylon was, um, was considered unconquerable because of its immense size, its immense walls, 300, plus, uh, wall, 300 foot plus walls out, you know, on the outside, and then you had these inner walls going on. You had a 20-year supply of food so you could outweigh any siege. You had a river flowing through the city as a constant water supply. People just thought there's just no way that this city would ever, ever, ever be conquered. And so Belshazzar and the nobles were basically boasting. You guys can camp all you want out there, but we're just going to go ahead and party. We're kind of kind of party in your face, if you will, because you're never going to conquer us, not, not the city of Babylon. Proverbs 18, 12, before, the destruction, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. But thirdly, and here's what we do know, this was Definitely a religious celebration that was going on. The rituals that were used to worship the Babylonian gods always involved a lot of drunkenness and a lot of immorality. Hence, the wine and the concubines. But they also, these these celebrations also involved offering some kind of appeasement to the gods, if you will. And that's why Belshazzar gave order to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple of God in Jerusalem and stored them away somewhere. They bring them out of storage. Now, they didn't do it because they ran out of cups or goblets. Yeah, there was a thousand nobles. You had their whole entourage there, the wives, the concubines. There could have been five, 10,000 people easily. But it wasn't because they ran out of cups or that they had a thing for vintage silverware. 
It was because Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make a statement here. He was appeasing the Babylonian gods who were in their eyes offended. How do we know that? Because they just lost the last battle and they had never lost a battle like that. And the only conclusion for them was we must have somehow displeased the gods. And so, Neb- uh, and so Belshazzar, in order to regain the favor of the gods, did so by insulting the one and true God of Israel by using the holy goblets that were reserved for the priest in the holy place within the temple and using them to basically uh, uh, fill with wine and toast their gods who were not gods at all. It was like spitting in the face of the one true God. And he thought that would buy him something, buy him some favor with the gods of Babylon. Verse 5, suddenly though, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face, face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his, his knees were knocking. Now remember, we talked about this earlier too in Babylonian culture. Signs like this were, were, were seen as ominous omens, bad omens that were about to come their way. And so this floating hand wouldn't have been met with some kind of inquisitiveness. Like, that's weird. Look at that hand floating over there. They wouldn't have thought that at all. Maybe 21st century man, but not these guys. They were all, they were all gripped with fear. The whole banquet call, I imagine, you know. I mean, it says right here that, that uh, Belshazzar's face turned pale, his, his knees knocked. I imagine the water fell on the floor. I imagine the whole place sobered up pretty quick. All the concubines were running for the exits. You know, the the handwriting on the wall caused fear to grip everybody that was in that banquet hall. Now, in the Bible, the hand of God is symbolic. It's like like a human hand is the body part where either judgment or blessing is released from, so also with the hand of the Lord. And this time, though, the symbolic actually becomes visible, and the emphasis is not just on the hand, but on the fingers, which represent in the Bible the power of God. So the finger of God that brought the plagues upon Egypt was now writing words of judgment on the the palace walls, right on the plaster. Ironically, the very place that would have been covered with drawings and objects that honored the greatness of the royal family. So here you have this place of honor and God decides, I'm going to write the judgment right beside what they celebrate. And because of the timing of this, Belshazzar should have known. He should have realized that the writing had something to do with those Jewish goblets that we just took out of storage. He had taken what was holy and profaned it, but he didn't see it. Instead, verse 7, the king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. They said to these wise, and then he said to the wise men of Babylon, Who read, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed with purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he'll be made the third highest 
in the rule, a ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. And so King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. Now, apparently, she, she wasn't there. She wasn't invited to this party. Dad's gone and grandma's gone. She heard it. She came in. May the king live forever. Customary greeting. Don't be alarmed, she says to Belshazzar. And don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like the magicians and enchanters and astrologers and diviners. He did this, I'm sorry, verse 12. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. So call for Daniel and he tell you what the writing means. So the queen here is King Nebuchadnezzar's wife. So it's the grandma of Belshazzar, who's probably again in her 80s, but obviously still has a lot of kick to her. She comes in there and she respectfully rebukes the young king in front of a thousand nobles plus and reminds him that there is a prophet named Daniel who served her husband very well and has a knack for this kind of thing. So apparently Daniel's been living in relative obscurity since the death of Nebuchadnezzar because it seems like Belshazzar barely remembers him. Nonetheless, he's about to crash the party. Verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king. And the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you might and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought to me to read the writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed with purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now we learn a lot about Belshazzar here in his words to Daniel. Although similar to Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, he was, he was much different. They, uh, they both were powerful. They were both prideful. They were both evil men. But when confronted by evil, Nebuchadnezzar repented and Belshazzar did not. Belshazzar had no intention of repenting, and it can be seen in the way that he subtly insults Daniel in this, in this passage. He, he begins, when he comes in, he calls him basically a captured slave. Instead of the man who greatly blessed his grandfather and saved the Babylonian kingdom. He's just nothing but a captured slave. But Daniel sees Belshazzar's ignorance for what it is. Not a rejection of him, but a rejection of the message of God. Throughout the book of Daniel, throughout the narrative, there has been a, a, a message that has been progressively been revealed. The message that we know as the gospel. In chapter 1, God mercifully saves people even though they have grievously sinned against Him. 
And in chapter 2, that salvation will one day culminate in an eternal physical kingdom where the redeemed will live forever and ever under the blessing and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the meantime, chapter 3, this very king who will one day set up a kingdom, this king will remain present with us even though and even when we go through the fiery furnaces of life. And chapter 4, he'll continue to deal graciously with those who humble themselves and repent no matter how sinful their past, as in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. But, chapter 5, there is a day surely coming where there will be a judgment for the unrepentant from which there will be no escape, as is the case for Belshazzar. But before Daniel announces that judgment, by interpreting the writing on the wall, he first tells Belshazzar why he's being judged by God in the first place by comparing him to his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and was hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. You knew this. In other words, you were willfully ignorant of the truth. It was not that you lacked knowledge about the one true God, but rather that you willingly suppressed what you plainly knew about God through his dealings with your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. You know what Romans 1 says? That this is exactly what all of fallen humanity does suppress the truth that they already know about God to such an extent that they become ignorant of God even to the point of denying God all the while worshiping things He created in His place. And that is the reason for the handwriting on the wall. Again, verse 22, But you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and, and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways. And therefore, he sent the hand 
that wrote the inscription, the inscription that was written, many, many, tekel, parson. And here's what these words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Wow. Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself, was judged by God, and repented. Therefore, his soul was saved. His kingdom was restored. Belshazzar exalted himself, was judged by God, but refused to repent. Therefore, his soul was lost and his kingdom was taken away. His judgment was revealed in the writing on the wall. Many, many, tekel, perez. The words are Aramaic. And the Aramaic language is one of a consonant-only text. And therefore, there's no vowels and no spaces. So that may have been why the Babylonian wise men could not read it or interpret it. Many means numbered. And that's emphasized two times for, again, emphasis. Tekel, to be weighed. Parson, or the plural of parson, perez, means divided. That is the meaning of the words, but not the interpretation. The interpretation came through from the Spirit through Daniel. And the interpretation was many, the number of your days has come to an end, tekel, you have been weighed on the scales of God and found wanting, and perez, your kingdom is divided and judged. Verse 29. Then, that Belshazzar's command, Daniel, although he didn't want it, was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Of course, it meant nothing to him because, well, the ver next verse, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. That very night. Ancient historian Herodias tells us that Babylon was conquered by the Persians and the Medes. Basically, they secretly dug a canal to divert the waters that ran through the city, the Euphrates River. They diverted just enough of the water where the, the, the water level went down lower than the portals through which the water flowed to enter the city. And that's how the soldiers got in and stealthily they made their way through the city and to the party and killed Belshazzar and took this great, fortified, impenetrable, unconquerable city of Babylon without even a fight. Many, many, Tekel Perez. The history books will say the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. God's Word says God judged Babylon and directed that to happen, that the Medo-Persians were now the rulers over ancient Babylon. So what you have here in chapter 4 is the Holy Spirit using King Nebuchadnezzar's salvation to affirm that God gives grace to the repentant, no matter how sinful their past is. And you can't get much worse than Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 5, however, 
the Holy Spirit uses King Belshazzar's blasphemy to declare that God will indeed judge the unrepentant no matter how secure they may think they are in their present to equally evil kings demonstrate two equally vital messages. God's complete pardon for the repentant who humble themselves and God's sure judgment for the proud who exalt themselves. And this, this is the theme of Daniel chapter 5. It's judgment, God's judgment. It's not an easy message. It's not like we really want to hear about God's judgment all the time. Pastor, you haven't been preaching enough on judgment. I wish you would preach more about judgment. Hey, it's been two weeks since I heard anything about judgment. We don't like to hear about judgment, do we? But if sin has no consequences, if evil has no judgment, if divine justice never comes, then what good is God and of what benefit is His mercy? If grace is amazing, then it must save us from something. And that something is divine judgment. Many, many tekel peres. You say, I don't believe in a God of judgment. I believe in a God who is only love. A God who is only good. That's impossible. You can't believe in a God of love and goodness unless you believe in a God who is just and judges sin. If He is not just and therefore does not judge sin, He cannot be loving or good. It would be like if someone committed a crime against you and it, and it cost you and the case, was, the case was criminal. It was brought before the court. It was tried. And you're standing before the judge and he looks over at that person who's taken so much from you and says, it really doesn't matter. You can go. Is that judge good? Is that good judge loving? Is that judge righteous? Infinitely more with the holy judge over the universe. Besides that, when you say, I only believe in a God with these certain attributes, X, Y, and Z, how do you know that you believe in the actual God? You can never know because you're making Him up. When you embrace some attributes of God and reject others, you end up with a God made in your own image or an idol. And that's why God gives us His Word so that we could know Him in His entirety. So we could know all of His attributes, not just some of His attributes. So we could know Him completely instead of making our own God who doesn't offend our humanistic sensibilities. And all of this really highlights one of the great weaknesses in the modern church. And that is the absolute failure of pastors and churches to teach the whole counsel of God. The whole nature of God. Who God is. Because they're afraid of offending culture. They're afraid of perhaps offending a seeker. And so they preach a half gospel that's focused on God's love and blessing but ignores God's holiness and God's righteousness. But what they don't realize is that unless a seeker sees that they're a sinner before a holy God deserving of His righteous judgment, they will never see the need to be saved. Saved from what? Low self-esteem? 
a bad day? Saved from what? From God's righteous judgment of their sin. That's why we need to be saved. A person may pray a prayer to get their life back on track, but fail to be saved from the penalty of their sin because they never really and truly believe the gospel. And this is the whole reason Jesus came into the world right from the very beginning. Matthew chapter 1. His name shall be called Jesus for he shall save his people from what? Their sin. See, and that's why Paul passed on this model to the Ephesian pastors. He said to them in Acts 20, 27, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. And the failure to follow that model, to only teach bits and pieces of the Bible that are particularly attractive to itching ears, is that the church is weak, weaker than it's ever been. And our culture is in decline because of it. And our nation is getting closer and closer and closer to the writing on the wall. So what's the answer? The answer is simple. Repentance. And I'll give you three reasons why. We need to, as a nation, repent. Why? Because unless people repent, they're going to become more immoral and more away from God. Sin does not leave you in a static state. Sin always takes you downhill. When sin is left unrepented, it takes you down into more sin. And we see that right here in the story. We see the moral decline between Bel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar rebelled against God by taking the glory to God for himself. Belshazzar not only rebelled against God, but blasphemed against God by profaning the holy vessels of God and using them to raise a toast to the gods of Babylon. When we observe what's going on in our culture, we can see the same thing. Our culture is going downhill. It's gone beyond the evil of Nebuchadnezzar and becoming like the evil of Belshazzar, profaning what God calls sacred, profaning the sacredness of preborn life through abortion, profaning the innocence of childhood with hypersexualization, profaning the sacredness of sex through fornication and pornography and adultery, profaning gender through transgenderism, profaning the sacredness of marriage and family through same-sex marriage, profaning the church through worldliness, profaning the sacredness of the end of life through euthanasia. We could go on. The path, though, of sin always goes downhill. And that's why God lovingly warns of judgment and calls people to repentance. You can't come away with anything else when you read the Old Testament and the prophets. It's a calling back to God, a calling to repent and come back to the heart of God. And the way that God does that, there's many ways, but the primary way He does that is through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of the cross. We need to hear more about the cross. The cross is central. The cross is a warning, first of all. It's a warning. And how is it a warning? Well, look, 
I mean, if the God who spoke the universe into an existence, the God who is above and beyond anything created, who is outside of the universe, who has no beginning of days nor end of days, this God, this King over all creation, if He had to become a man in order to die on a cross if there wasn't any other way, then sin must be way more horrible than we have ever conceived it to be. Otherwise, a lesser price would have been received. I mean, think about it. If God the Father, who at an infinite cost to Himself, gave up His own Son, what does that say about the sinfulness of sin? It must be much more horrible than we could ever conceive. But the cross, and that's why the cross then says, run from sin. Turn away from sin. It's going to destroy you and potentially lead to judgment. But the cross is is also something that calls out to us and says the same thing. Look, if that's what the Son of God did for you. They left the glories of heaven and entered the earth in order to go die on a cross for your sins. God must love us way more than we have ever imagined. If the Father, at infinite cost to Himself, would give up His Son while we were yet sinners, God must love us infinitely more than we have ever known or experienced. And therefore, the cross not only says, turn away from sin, the cross says, come near to me, all of you are weary and burdened and laden with sin, and I will give you the rest of forgiveness and peace and freedom. So the answer, the answer is repentance. Because number two, unless people repent, they're going to become more and more blinded to the impending danger. The very height of the party, I mean, at the very height of this party, God's judgment was already on the way and came upon them before they ever knew what was happening. What we are observing in our country today is like Belshazzar's party attended by all the proud, self-appointed nobles of the world who are drunk on their own vision to create a new Babylon. They think they are impenetrable fortress as they carry out their plan. But what they do not realize is just outside the gates is an army of God's angels just waiting for the signal. Though secure in the world, all unrepentant, the great or the small, will ultimately be, ultimately be numbered, weighed, divided, and judged. Many, many tekel peres. So the question is, is the handwriting already on the wall? We don't know. We don't know. No one really knows that for sure. But when judgment comes, and it will, it will come quickly. Jesus said this, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. 
For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that's how it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Repent. Third reason, because unless people repent, They'll continue to store up more of God's judgment or wrath for themselves. Now, there are times in history where sin abounds, and it doesn't seem like God's intervening. He's not doing anything, at least not in an obvious way. And in those times, when God's judgment is mercifully held back, it's very tempting, and we must not be deceived into thinking that God is unaffected by sin or that He will ignore it forever. No, He's not unaffected. He was so affected by it, He gave up His Son. God's judgment is like the slow rising waters behind a dam that eventually overflow and pour out. Romans 2.5 says just this. It says, when people... Uh, remain unrepentant and continue to refuse God's mercy towards them, revealed in the gospel, they are storing up wrath for the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2.5. God is righteous and just, and He will judge the unrepentant. But God is also loving and merciful, and will forgive and save the repentant who believe the gospel. And that is the testimony of every believer in Jesus Christ. That's your testimony. That's my testimony. We may not have sinned as greatly as Belshazzar, but we have all sinned, and therefore we are all liable to the same writing on the wall. Many tekel Perez. The New Testament version of Many tekel Perez is Romans 3.20 and Romans 6.23. Romans 3.20, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.20, and the wages of that sin is death. Same exact thing. Many, our days are numbered and coming to an end. Tekel, we have been weighed on the scales of God and fallen short of God's standard. Perez we will be divided or separated from the kingdom of God. Many tekel Perez. It wasn't only the handwriting against Belshazzar then. Ultimately, it was, say was, the handwriting that was once against us. Colossians 2.14. And you, being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. How? having wiped out the handwriting of decrees that was against us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross of His Son. What does that mean? Jesus wiped out the handwriting on the wall for us. He wiped out our many tekel Perez. Our days are not numbered now. We're going to live forever. Why? Because another has been weighed in our place and found perfect, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we will live forever with Him in His kingdom. 
So instead of hearing Daniel read the writing on the wall, we, we hear Jesus cry out from the cross, it is finished. I've done it all. It is finished. You know, Daniel, Daniel saw the hand of God write judgment for sin on a wall. We have seen the hands of God for our sin nailed to the cross. Daniel saw a prideful king on a throne drink a cup of judgment. We have seen the humble king on a cross drink the cup of judgment for our sin. And before he did that, on that same night in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said these words, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of wrath. The cup of the judgment for our sins. If you're willing, take this cup from me. And yet, not my will, but yours be done. And so, every time that we receive communion, we'll do it next week, you know what we're doing? We're celebrating the fact that because Jesus died and rose again, that that cup of judgment has become our cup of salvation. That cup of judgment has become our cup of blessing because the gospel rewrites the writing on the wall. You say, how does the gospel rewrite the writing on the wall? Many, our days will not come to an end, will live forever with God because tekel, Jesus has been weighed by God and found perfect and therefore qualified to be the substitute for our sin, to be judged in our place. The perfect man bore the penalty for our sins. And when we believe in him, Perez, we are no longer divided from God. We will live in his kingdom forever and ever. Many tackle Perez. And I just got to say it, one book, the Bible, one story, the gospel, one hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the Word of God. You should have seen me this week when I saw that in Scripture. I about flipped out of my chair. I have more fun studying it than you do listening to it, believe me. I love it. God's Word is good, isn't it? God's Word is good. What a promise we have in our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And, and if you've never really, truly believed. See, I'm not talking about just praying a prayer. But I mean believing. Believe that He died on the cross for you. Personally. And that on the cross, He drank the cup of the judgment that should have fallen on you for your sins. He took it. He deserved none. But God loved you so much, He sent His Son to drink that cup of judgment for you. Our sins, my sins, your sins must be judged, but because of God's grace, they're judged on another. His name is Jesus. And when we believe in Him, that forgiveness becomes ours. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever believes that Christ died on the cross for their sin shall be saved. There's a real moment of salvation. It's a moment in time where you go from one side of the line to the other. 
Now you may be very fond of God, but still on this side because you have never really believed. Believed. Christ died on the cross. Rose from the dead so you could be completely forgiven, past, present, and future. If you've never believed, you believe in your heart, but Romans 10 says, your heart comes out of your mouth in confession. So I'd like to lead you in a confession, if that's what's in your heart this morning. Let's confess together. I believe in Jesus Christ, that He died on the cross for my sin, and that He rose again from the dead to make me right with God. I have turned from my sin. I have trusted in Christ. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand and like our prayer team. Come up at this time if you need prayer for anything. We'll be up here in the front after the service. And uh, if you can hang around for a while to fellowship, please do. If not, you know, safe travels, and we'll see you next week.